Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. I would like to begin first by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which I live and pay my respects to the elders past, present and future. Today we have an interview with Virginia Miller on her book, Leaning into the Spirit, Ecumenical Perspectives on Discernment and Decision Making in the Church. Virginia was the editor of this work and also contributed an essay. Virginia is a research fellow at the Center for Public and Contextual Theology at Charles Sturt University at its Canberra campus, and she has had an interesting career including receiving a doctorate from Murdoch University in Western Australia, studied Biblical Hebrew at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, was the scholar-in-residence in the Anglican Centre in Rome in 2007 and was the Crawford Miller Visiting Scholar at St. Cross College, Oxford in 2019. So all in all, that sounds very interesting. The book contains insights into ecumenicism and the back of the book tells us that it considers the idea of moving into an ecumenicism the idea of moving into an ecumenical winter as incorrect and that a new ecumenical spring is dawning. Now, Virginia, that sounds a little bit like the tales of Narnia to me when spring breaks through the winter. Could you let me know how this book came about? Sure. Um, I was the organiser for the fourth uh, conference on receptive ecumenism, which was held in Canberra, was co-hosted by... Australian Catholic University and Charles Sturt University. So many of the contributions from the book were actually presentations that were sourced from the conference. Uh, importantly, we had uh, as the main speaker Paul Murray, who was the initiator of the idea of receptive ecumenism or the theory of receptive ecumenism, uh, which has become very popu- popular in ecumenical circles. Uh, we didn't give him an easy time. Uh, we actually invited one contributor, Peter Carnley, who suggested that uh, receptive ecumenism in particular may not have much of a future and is more of a default position in ecumenism. Uh, but generally in the book, uh, most uh, contributors believe that receptive ecumenism does have a future and is very useful in the ecumenical movement. In addition to the conference, uh, we invited some other contributors to give the volume more weight. So we invited Martin Percy from Christchurch, Oxford, to write the foreword, uh, Thomas Rausch um, and Paul Avis. So that's how the book came about. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the idea of receptive ecumenism as opposed to ecumenism. That, that might be important in the discussion. Yeah, that was going to be my – well, I've, I've become more aware of it, having read the book, but 
But before then, no, it would have meant nothing to me. And that was my, I think it is very important that you explain to us what that actually means. So the idea or the theory of receptive ecumenism is uh, basically quite simple. It's the idea of uh, an ecumenical uh, exchange rather than approaching it from the perspective that your dialoguing partner is defective and you can teach them of a better way of doing things or convince them of the way that your church does things. You actually look to the other dialoguing partner or the other church and see what you can receive from them uh, and what uh, gifts they have, what strengths they have. Um, so it is a rather simple idea, um, has been somewhat contested in ecumenical circles. There, the, there has been a controversy, well, is this just not ecumenism or is this just not a posture of humility? I think that question is still unanswered, but it's certainly become very uh, important when these dialogues encounter seemingly intractable positions, such as the ordination of women, um, issues of sexuality, for example. So it can be a, a bit of a default position to keep the conversation going and in a respectful manner um, when ecumenism is, encounters uh, these seemingly impossible dilemmas. Yes. And I was On that point, one thing that was going around in my head when I was working through this book is how does receptive ecumenism or even ecumenism of any sort so i take it there can be there can be two views one can be i must make you believe what i believe which would seem to be a lot of these authors in this in your book think is not very helpful the other way is to be a bit more receptive to what the person you're speaking with has to say does it lead to is there a tendency or a critique made that it may lead to a watering down to the absolute basics between two groups rather than actually progress either of them to any any place into the future. It's just reducing what's already there to what are common between two groups? Sure, and um, I think that's the heart of the contribution by Peter Carnley um, where he says this is quite superficial. Um, after you get to the point of respectful exchange, if you want the churches to come together in full visible communion and to share the sacraments, you have to do the tough intellectual work. And his argument is that he's not sure if receptive ecumenism, well, he is sure that it can't get us there. And basically, um, at the end of the day, people need to do the creative intellectual work. Yeah. They need to, sorry need to address these difficult issues head on. And there is a concern, you say watering down, the other aspect is avoiding the difficult issues. So it becomes, uh, I appreciate that we have differences um, without a driving force to find some convergence. Yes, and, and there are, um, yes, and there, uh, what you've just said, there, there are a lot of concepts I want to unpack as we go through some of these. Some of, through some of these essays, they really do 
and seems to me at least point to ways in which you may be able to achieve an outcome in that line. I'd like to ask a question about, there's an essay by Mr. Welker. Um, he's one of oh, yeah. the, I think he's the first person who writes, the first essay presented in the book after the forward. And he has an idea where he refers to the Reformation, the, the Reformation of the Protestant churches from the, the Catholic Church was not simply a renewal of theology, but that actually resulted in a reorientation of the educational system and culture. It became an educational revolution because human beings gained a new way of seeing things, a new way of dealing with and interacting with religious texts. In a sense, so the Reformation ended a unity within a religious system, but in another way, it gives an idea to get how to actually rebuild to something different. Could you comment on that? Sure, I think, um, not sure exactly where you're talking about. I remember Belka talking about uh, the education system changing. Mm. Uh, I think the thrust of his uh, papers, if I recall, is that um, there is a criticism uh, mainly by Catholics that the Reformation theology is too Christ-centric. Um, and there's a counter-criticism that... Uh, traditional uh, theology in the Roman Catholic Church is um, too abstract and not centred in uh, lived experience. Um, not sure if that answers your question. Um, can you elaborate further? Yeah, I, I was just thinking that it's, it seems counterintuitive, but if one of the outcomes from the Reformation period was that people who weren't clerics could engage with scriptural texts because they became published in the vernacular. And that may have led to, in a way, breaking apart of churches. The fact that all these individuals can now dialogue with themselves can actually be a way to, one might ask you, is ecumenicism a way of rebuilding towards something just that not something different, not going back to something that pre-existed, but now saying, well, let's all get together. We can all talk about these things. Let's see where we can take this. Right. Okay. I understand. Um, absolutely. And that's very perceptive. Um, the idea of ecumenism is, well, the general idea is not to go back to the pre-Reformation church, um, but to come together in something different mm. and and there is also the thought, as you suggest, that um, the split, so to speak, has been useful in that uh, there's been attention paid to some of these areas that um, weren't otherwise working uh, for everybody. And now there's uh, the diversity has been developed more. Uh, and the thing that we're expecting, the, the church at the end of this will be the idea is that it will be um, yeah, very different than the church before and will be healed of some of the wounds that um, led to the Reformation. So there's also an idea in ecumenism of uh, repentance and conversion, so repentance for the splitting of the church uh, and coming together uh, in personal conversion but also in terms of a corporate conversion of the church as well as something new yes i want to move to the 
essay by Stanley Ilo. And I'm going to try and I'll probably go through this discussion we have by re referring to some essays and asking a few questions on that. And hopefully the discussion will start drawing together some of these strands of ecumenism into something that could be seen as a understanding the entire project of it. And the essay by Stan Ilo makes a perceptive point I found was it says in, in his writing from an African perspective, and he's almost talking about a, a local folk ecumenism, and he talks about a hidden cultural grammar. And one of the points he makes, and a quote I wrote down is he says, if you come from a large main a main line church, like the Catholic Church, they might come into a culture with a series of, of doctrines, which are the way in which you practice their religion, but that the actual people within that community might actually have a way of living a faithful or spiritual life that might not be hierarchical. And he says the Catholic Church is coming to the realization that religious is religion is inescapably shaped by forces beyond authoritative statements about the essentials of faith. And unless that's what he calls secondary reception is forced onto the believing faithful, that um there will be their faith will be practiced with a blend of Catholicism and their traditions. Could you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, sure. I, I think um, all Christians and, and church leaders would accept that the practice of Christianity can be very different from the doctrine um, and has a cultural influence which is uh, particularly sharp in the uh, African context, particularly also in some of the Asian contexts, as, as Rorsch brings out in his contribution as well. Mm. Uh, interestingly, I, I read um, a Pew report some years back uh, that suggested that, um, you know, there's a number of these contradictions between uh, formal doctrinal formal beliefs and what Christians actually believe. So, for instance, um, there's a large number of Christians who believe in reincarnation. <laughs> mm. um, so it is a fallacy to think that all Christians subscribe to a, a formal set of views and live their life in accordance with that. Um, there's also the contrast with... Um, uh, people's own views. So, for instance, my mentor taught against uh, petitionary prayer, you know, praying for God to do something for you. But he said when his uh, daughter was very sick, he resorted to petitionary prayer, even though he didn't ascribe to it intellectually. So you can even have this contrast within yourself. Mm -hmm. um, Certainly in ecumenism, uh, there is a, a strong awareness that uh, the faith faith at the local level and how it's played out is very different uh, from formal documents. Um, and also in terms of ecumenism, and I hope I'm not, um, I'm not going ahead bit here, but Keith uh, Peckler's in his paper talks about how, I mean, at the ground level in Rome, it would appear that ecumenism is being lived out um, prior to uh, formal agreements. So, for example, he gives uh, the, the symbols of uh, 
the exchange of pectoral crosses, which should only happen if one bishop uh, believes that another person is a bishop. Um, for instance, the co-editor of the book, David Moxon, uh, celebrating um, Evensong at St Peter's Basilica. So there is also a lived reality of faith and ecumenism along with uh, the formal documents. Mm. An issue of concern, though, upon saying that is uh, the maintenance of Christian identity. Right? So uh, the question is, um, I mean, believing in the Trinity would seem to be an essential for, for uh Christian identity, uh, if there is a church that is calling itself a Christian church and they don't uh, share that belief, um, is that going too far? Um, some yeah. people might say it is, right? So um, I think it's a fine line between accepting um, these cultural inclusions and maintaining Christian identity. Uh and not wanting to come together uh, for the sake of coming together, but uh, coming together with some kind of parameters. Yes, because it's it seems to be a real philosophical or theological problem or matter to be dealt with. That if, if as you said, people, as a as a matter of fact, a certain number of say got to a critical mass of Christian believers believed in reincarnation is that just what christianity has become a religion that has reincarnation or not it becomes very um yeah, it becomes very interesting yes well as you say it leads to uh, the question of what is christianity um generally we we the mainline churches agree that it uh is dictated by creeds and what have you and um but as you say, with some of the African traditional religions, uh, that idea is challenged and certainly is very difficult in terms of uh, the endeavours of ecumenism. Now, I, I guess the point I should make there is this is where the idea of receptive ecumenism is has some utility, right? Mm. Uh, so you're talking about groups that you may not be able to, to you know, enter into considerable um bilateral conversations, but you can enter into um, a, a state of learning about their perspective and uh, sharing beliefs, right? Yes, and I was going to ask with that that idea of sharing beliefs, what what are your thoughts on, on this idea? Because this struck me when I was going through your book, was that you may have a church like the Catholic Church which is very large and has however many billion or hundreds of million people who say that they're a part of it. And to an outsider, that looks like a unified whole. But if you wandered into the church, they've got things called religious orders. And some of those religious orders can be as different from, can be incredibly different from one another. And they can have different disputes. And also within a lot of large church, like the Anglican church, you can have Bishops like um, Bishop Sprong in America or Justin Welby or the, the Archbishop of Sydney who seemed that they all seem to have very different approaches 
but they fall underneath this unified creed. So it's almost as though there's the overarching creed and they've worked out within that the the sort of limits of it and how they can have almost well really vastly different views on certain things but still remain under the same roof. And is that a way of making is that almost in its own way of having is that an ecumenical project within a church? Yeah, well, that's interesting. When I was, um, I, I remember when I uh, many years ago, my uh, the church, the priest at my Catholic church um, was very liberal, and he was uh, accused of being a Protestant, <laughs> and there right. was some idea that liberal um, Protestants and uh, uh, liberal Catholics had more in common with each other than they did with uh, other elements of their own. Uh, you know, denomination. Um, yes, yeah, certainly, certainly, and if you think of the Anglican Communion, the divisions in the Anglican Communion in some ways are, uh, are similar to the divisions between you know, uh, Anglican dialogues and dialogues with Roman Catholics. So, for example, the uh, conservative arm of the Anglican Communion doesn't agree with the ordination of women. Uh, doesn't agree um, installation of uh, you know, homosexuals in active relationships. Um, they, they don't want to pursue certain ideas with sexuality, for instance. Uh, so that division exists within the Anglican Communion. Uh, they deal with it by uh, one term or one phrase, uh, diver- unity and diversity. Um right. And this term is carried over into broader ecumenism and the idea of finding unity in diversity. Uh, but, yes, certainly, uh, certainly, I mean, the creeds and, and the, the agreed values and shared mission work uh, have been the way forward, which is another aspect that didn't really come out much in the book. And that is, uh, there's a large body of ecumenism now which is committed, well, has been for a long time actually, but it's now pronounced now, is committed to working together and mission work and outreach and social justice and charity rather than focusing so much on doctrinal issues, uh, coming together practically, so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's right. And you can imagine that would just another way to get to to get to where you need to go. It might even be a better way to get there because you just you would really start respecting the person standing next to you. You wouldn't be starting from a oh our creed says this, your creed says that point of view. Um, well, the other idea is the um, the idea of getting on with it as a Christian, and and uh, committed Christian service is about outreach. And it's something that we can do together to build the kingdom of God. Um, it's another way of going about things. Mm. Now, there's an essay on ecumenism in India by Paul, and I'm sure I'll get his name wrong, but Paul Pulakan, who's a priest. And he talks about, one matter he talks about in India, which just must be one of the most diverse religious landscapes in the entire world, and talks about the idea that with Christianity itself, he refers to it as being scandalised because 
The churches may be trying to gather converts, but from the outsider who may be a Hindu or a Muslim, they would see the church as actually not being this unified community, but as a community of broken apart churches. So it has this, it, it almost, it seems to be from their perspective, it doesn't actually appear even to be something that is unified in the first place, which may actually detract from its attractiveness to potential converts. What's your view on that? Well, that's uh, that's nothing new either. I mean, uh, that's uh, not a post-Reformation idea. I, I, um, Christianity has always had sex. It's always had groups uh, with different views. It's always had discussions about who's a heretic and who's not. Um, in fact, I believe that uh, the consistency of the Quran is such um, that uh, in Islam they didn't want to have the fractions that uh, have always been in, in Christianity. Um, I think I, I do agree with uh, Paul Kulikan and with Paul Avis that the schism in the church and the division of the church is a, is a great scandal. Uh, because it means that Christ, there's a lot of infighting with Christians, which gets in the way of, uh, as I said before, getting together in outreach, getting together in, um, well, even evangelizing um, and doing what Christians maybe should be doing. Uh, but by the same token, it's uh, always been accepted as positive that there are are diverse views in Christianity and that there is room for interpretation. And we're working from uh, you know, an authoritative text, the Bible, that has many inconsistencies in it. It has two different creation stories. It, it has different accounts of people. Um, it's, not, uh, you know, it's not completely unified. So I think it can be positive to have room for interpretation as well and room for diverse views. And, and basically I think it leads to more creativity if, uh, and authenticity if uh, Christians can engage in that way. So um, uh, I think I, I may be talking out of turn here but I, I, I did um, read that on his deathbed, Luther actually regretted uh, creating a schism. Uh, he recognized, obviously, um, he was very much offended by the corruption in the Catholic Church at mm -hmm. the time. Uh, but he regretted that the church didn't remain intact and that that corruption wasn't addressed uh, without splitting the church. I mean, we, we face a similar problem today with corruption in the church, right? We have the child sex abuse scandals and what have you. Um, and I think it is important for the church to stay unified to address its own problems as well and uh, to keep, keep within it you know, our modern-day prophets who are going to challenge people and um, create reform and renew the church, right? Rather than expelling people and uh, not addressing those issues that need change and um, need to be worked on. Yes, and um, similarly to that, 
Paul Pulikan makes a point where he talks about the idea of separation of church and state and the concept of secularism. And in the West, he says that secularism is often the idea that church and state are separate. So your moral views only have a public currency if they can just be generally treated as acceptable secular views that, that don't need to be based strictly on a religious viewpoint. But in India, a, a secularism is often thought of as being an equal respect for all religions. And you see pictures of Catholic priests who might be robed participating in a Hindu um, parade or something or other. And even in Sydney, Australia, you see groups of Hindu people, or I've seen them, groups of Hindu people come to shrines in, in well, I've seen them in Catholic churchyards and put down flowers and things like that. So there seems to be this notion of a, of a, of a respect toward other religions, which might not be as apparent in Christianity. Yeah, I found that fascinating um, when Paul said that, you know, secularism is often thought of as the separation of church and state. But as, as you said, in India, it's a more respect for all religions. Um, but, of course, that, that is the, the other challenge for uh, Christians and ecumenism at this point of time, and that's the rise of atheism and, or secularism. And uh, another reason for the church to be unified um, and maybe this perspective could be helpful in our dialogues in, in the UK or Australia, for example. Yes, he makes the point on that. He goes on to say, which is also interesting, where he says, um, in some ways, ecumenism is something for an older cohort, whereas the younger people, do you hear that expression, the nuns, the younger people are attracted to the idea of religions, religion just religions doing what they can just to get along, and there's no need to, to have these strict boundaries between things. Um, true, but are we falling into relativism then? I mean, this is a part of, another part of the ecumenical problem is uh, um, relativism versus particularism. I mean, we need to maintain some kind of particularity uh, even if we're becoming unified, right? I mean, I mean, this this is this is very difficult even in biblical studies at this point in time. Uh, right. uh, I mean, to be a Christian means you have a particular come from a particular viewpoint, right? Um, uh, and it means that also you don't accept other viewpoints, uh, and you're not you're actually not all encompassing. Would would you agree with that? Yes, it, and it's and I think this is where um uh, where it's almost as though once the if the culture if the culture runs ahead of the religion or just separates from the from the religion, it can just be hard to bring the next generation into even thinking about religion the in the way in which people a generation ago may have thought of it and having the the strictness of having some not being relative between all religions might just not seem to make sense to someone anymore, and then it can be hard to, to get them to see why it ought to make sense. Well, I think part of religion is trying to make truth claims too. Now, I know in the modern world <laughs> um, claiming that you're making truth claims uh, can be seen in a very negative light, but um, 
Well, I'll give you a different example from my other world of biblical um, interpretation. Uh, so there's been a growing movement of people who've, who've suggested that any scholarship in, in biblical interpretation um, that comes from a Christian viewpoint is supersessionary, believes that Christianity is superior to Judaism and supersedes it. We now have come to a place, um, you know, there's a scholar in Berlin who's saying that New Testament scholars shouldn't even mention the Old Testament because it's cultural appropriation. Yeah. Um, so aside from ecumenism, um, any kind of scholarship in Christianity or, or, or other faiths probably have the same problems, I imagine, um, talking from my own experience. Uh, we're coming from a place where people want to be uh, very particular with the restrictions, but also they're very relativistic. So it's, uh, um, it's conflicting in a way. Mm, gosh, yes, it's um. I'm glad I don't do your job. That um, sounds very, very fine ground to tread through. Um, and another essay is by Keith Peckless. You mentioned uh, Keith Peckless earlier, and he does give that that example, which I was want to ask you about. He begins by telling this great story, which is about how. It appears that in the late 1800s, Pope Leo XIII was considering going into print to say that the Catholic Church would consider Anglican holy orders as being valid, which I take it would mean that in the same way that, as I understand it, the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox or the Orthodox churches treat one another as being able to both when they say the mass it's the same this the same consequence happens this, you get the same effect it doesn't matter that some people aren't within the roman church Correct. and that was a similar thing was going to be applied to the anglicans but the roman catholic cardinal in london cardinal vaughan didn't like this idea and in the because it apparently it would lead to people who were Anglican thinking of becoming Catholic no longer needing to. They could just remain Anglican if this, if this, went, this went ahead. So the, um, the Pope published a letter called the Apoliste, I'm going to say that wrong, I'll leave it to you, Curé, and it declared that Anglican orders, not just being null and void, but absolutely null and utterly void, just in case you mis mis misunderstood what they meant, which um, I imagine made things quite clear and um i want to i want to ask about that just that that event that seems quite radical well that's an interesting exercise on how one's advisors can uh change the course of the church i guess um in peter carney's contribution he says sometimes changes in ecumenism um, come about through, well, they used to say deaths, and in particular deaths of popes, but now we can say resignations, mm. right? Um, so there's an idea that ecumenism is a very slow process, but uh, it, as he said, things can actually change very quickly. They can change very quickly with personalities that, um, that are in power and that have a strong inclination for 
ecumenism. Um, in fact, in the talk that he gave, Peter Carnley gave at uh, the conference, he said he was, the, I think, the first archbishop in Australia to ordain women. He said when he, he thought about doing it, um, he was told it was impossible um, and he said 20 years later he'd ordained women, which is actually very quick when you consider that the training is about three or four years, right? Mm. So things can change very quickly uh, dependent on the personalities who are involved in positions of power uh, and who their advisors are. And there you have one case in history uh, where things may have um, changed the church dramatically. Uh, interestingly, uh, that was before the ordination of women too. So there was probably a good chance that Anglicans and Roman Catholics could have come together at that point in time. So that is a really interesting interesting point that Peckless makes. Yes, it is. And it's, interest, it's also interesting, sorry, that... Um, that the Curia in Rome have supported Peckler's in uh, bringing up the Malines conversation and revisiting some of these questions that came about in the original conversation. And he relays in that article, and I believe him, that he has a lot of support to do so. So that's encouraging. You would know that um, Pope Francis is committed to uh, ecumenism as is uh, Justin Welby at this point in time. So actually the environment for ecumenism is uh, is very strong at this point in time. Yes, and does that mean then that, well, you said that the two leaders of those two churches are both committed to this and they do, and the point you made seemed it's quite, it seems quite to be very significant gestures by presenting pectoral crosses, as you said, given by the Pope to Anglican bishops, suggesting that they do have some um, legitimate authority in the Pope's worldview. And also, I think he gave them the um, the the staffs so they carry, much, the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. which seems also very good. And one thing I, I noticed here, and I imagine this is a problem with churches churches by and large because they do have to have creeds they do have to have rules so if you're going to actually put words into a text that use that says something absolutely null and utterly void it's actually going to be a very difficult thing to remove unless you just directly contradict it saying that was we're not doing that anymore um and so the word the, the gestures can be great but it's almost a realm where the words are stronger than sticks and stones um won't break your bones but words will in this case they're just so powerful when you go by written doctrines and written creeds well you're right that is a devastating line because essentially it says uh that the anglican communion and the roman catholic church are not going to come together and shared um sacramental ministry um uh so yeah that that's uh these uh you know, these phrases can have a devastating effect in, mm. in ecumenism and have. Now, then there's a, a couple of sections about 
the Lutherans and Catholicism in Australia by Gerard Kelly. And he gives the example there of um of um what he seems to be this I found this a very useful example of receptive ecumen ecumenism, where he make the point I took one of the points I took from him was to say that if Catholics and, and Lutherans wish to join together on something, the Catholics can't the, the Catholics have to realise that um even though they might love this office of the Pope, they have to first of all appreciate that other people won't see it the same way that they do. And if so the Pope the role of the papacy might be non negotiable for Catholics. But that doesn't necessarily mean dialogue has to die because that's the case. And one of the things that be, can be taken away from this approach of receptivism is for the Catholics to say, well, what would the what would it take for the Lutherans to become themselves more receptive to the Pope? Let's ask them. And then we when we find that out, let's just see how malleable the Sea of Peter is to, to work out whether or not we can start changing that so that it can just be embraced by someone who's not Catholic. Yes, well, um, I mean, when you're talking about ecumenism, you're often talking, you know, dialogue often shifts to Roman Catholic and Anglican dialogues because they're probably the most high profile. But then we forget, uh, you know, there's a, the poor view um, uh, covenant where uh, the Lutheran Church and Anglican Communion will share ministries, right? Um, so in other areas, ecumenism is bearing a lot of fruit. Um, it, I think Jared Kelly also mentions in that paper that uh, Lutherans in Australia are using terms of the bishop's office. So instead of speaking about presidents, they're now speaking about bishops, which um, they've seen to be helpful. Uh, but, I mean, the question is, is the office of the papacy just so too central to Catholicism to even imagine not, not having it, right? So I know that with, with the Arctic documents, for instance, there's uh, been a lot of work in terms of, uh, I mean, there's a suggestion that uh, power in the Catholic Church is too centralised and it should become more synodal um, and, or more localised as it is in the Anglican Communion. There's also been a suggestion that the Anglican Church has what they call a, a soggy sort of middle, which is just a figurehead as a leader who doesn't have the same kind of power and, and that has its own problems. Um, uh, so there's been a lot of work done here in terms of uh, changing governance structures. Right. But the, the, the question of getting rid of the papacy altogether, um, I think that's one of the intractable uh, areas <laughs> of ecumenism. I imagine it is. Yeah, it's um, and another uh, a point I was going to come to later, but it's probably a good time to ask it now. Is in one of the later essays in the book, he talks a bit about Pentecostalism, the rise of Pentecostalism in the Southern Hemisphere in the South, and the yeah. difference between the North and the South. Christianity in the North now has such a different look to Christianity in the South, and um, just this this. I got the impression almost you would think, well, wouldn't the those more Pentecostal type churches think, 
why would we even want to why what's the point of us dialoguing with you even at all like why do we even what's the point of it why do we need to can't it's, we're not trying to we don't have a shared history other than in in the same way the lutherans and the anglicans and the catholics do we're just we're our own thing man we're just going to do it what why do we need to talk to you well the other aspect is they're growing right which is part of that article where Roche says, uh, you know, in the global south, Pentecostalism is, is growing in places where the other mainline churches, are, their membership is decreasing. Uh, not to forget um, the projection that in you know, China, there will there'll be 250 million Christians potentially in the next it was 20 or 30 years. That's some kind of a projection that he, he quotes. Um, and he talks of different Christianities. Uh, well, I mean, the, the point is not everybody's committed to ecumenism. And, and in fact, uh, you know, there's a strong body of Christians who are opposed to ecumenism. Then there's a smaller body of people who think that ecumenism is the devil's work, right? So, um, but for the people who are interested, you know, there's the idea that the church, um, and there's the, the, the scripture that supports us, that the Church should be unified. Um, so, I mean, we would think it's a moral imperative for, for Christians to be unified in, in some sense, <laughs> mm. right? So to, to take the view that, uh, you know, we're a growing body of people and we're very different and we have more power and we're not interested in coming together with you, um, you know, it seems to be dividing the body of Christ, right, which is... Uh, Christianity is essentially, and and why why must there just be ideally one Christian collection, not several? Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. Um, I don't know if I can answer that uh, satisfactorily. Um, yeah, and, and Rorsch says in the future we may be talking about different. Christianities, mm. um, which, which seems difficult to me. <laughs> um, I mean, I think of the theology of the body of Christ, which is a, a single unit with different members, members working together in different ways for you know, a single purpose or, or, or unified purpose. Um, uh, it makes sense to me. Um, I mean, I guess the other idea is, um, you know, there's a lot of the, there's a conflicts between Christians which could be overcome by working towards unity, um, but that is an interesting question. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it seems to me that it's such a big area. Now, I would like to turn to your own essay called "The Ministry of Mary," and you deal with another very difficult issue it must be in these types of dialogues where the Catholic Church has a relatively famous or infamous view on how women participate as clerics or not as clerics. And then there's been an idea that's talked about called complementarianism where women and men, as I understand it, are different, but they're both pretty they both got their own distinct roles, so we shouldn't we shouldn't necessarily say one person one gender is more important than another. And could you explain what 
but my, I was just ask you to talk about what your essay is aimed at drawing attention to and what it proposes. Okay. Well, the the reason I wrote my my essay was to provoke conversation in this area. So you may not know that um, with the ordination of women in some of the Protestant uh, churches, um, it was seen that this was. Uh, so divisive that a number of the dialogues stopped talking about the ordination of women. It became something that just couldn't even be talked about. Um, at this point in time, and actually since writing my paper, um, there's such a strong groundswelling of, of women, uh, particularly Catholic women, who, who want the ordination of women in the Catholic Church that it can't be ignored anymore. Um, in fact, there was a, a statement that came out of Germany recently which suggested that you know, we can't even have ecumenical dialogues anymore if the idea of the ordination of women isn't entertained. Now, the point of my argument, my chapter, was, um, you know, I, I see this issue as a very single-focused issue, right? It's sort of like to ordain women or not to ordain women and it's, it's been, you know, I've seen, it's been to me as though women are just banging their head against a brick wall in the Catholic Church and haven't imagined, well, is there another way forward, right? Mm. Um, so to begin with, I'm not against the ordination of women. I'm, I, I was also part of the Anglican Communion. It, it felt very natural to me. I do understand the theology behind complementarity, um, that seems also intellectually satisfying to me. Um, and I wonder if there's another way forward. I must say, you know, this might seem pretty quite controversial, but I was also inspired to write the article after um, when I lived in Perth, I was part of a cathedral community and um, I witnessed many women being ordained, and I also liaise with the ordination program about some of the candidates. And I noticed that um, uh, some of the, the, to me, some of the women who were ordained seemed to be taking on male postures. And, of course, the argument is that the priesthood is, is, you know, and the ministry of Christ is, is not gender specific, but certainly the institution of the priesthood has been gender specific, right? I mean, that's undeniable. Hmm. And I wonder if uh, there's another authentic way forward for women instituting something that is not taking on what has become a formed male institution. It's a Posing a, a question and and basically an academic exercise, um, but I think uh, you know it, it might be exciting for women to think of other ways forward rather than you know and the creation of new roles and uh, um, and having them informed by research of what it means to be a woman and how you want to, you know, what it means to be a woman in the church and how you want to express that. And, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. There may be another area of growth and creativity that hasn't been explored 
because so much of the discussion concerning the role of women in the church has been centred around ordination or not ordination, shall we say. Mm. Um, it is a controversial topic, though. And, and, <laughs> and are, you, are you talking about a small step toward ultimately one day women becoming priests or is actually a, a separate institution within the church that women would just make their own and would only be for them? Well, I'm looking at it from two different perspectives. One is a new role, but also for women who feel that the only way forward is ordination, uh, this could also be a way of achieving it. So, for instance, um, I go back to the case of uh, Peter Carnley here. Mm -hmm. uh, so when he wanted to ordain women, he took it very slowly. He uh, had women as altar servers and he got people in the community used to seeing women in um, the liturgy, women handing out uh, you know, the altar wine and having people become comfortable in an area which, which was only previously where, where men were. And the idea was that, you know, there's a sort of incremental additions and uh People aren't shocked anymore because they're used to seeing women in the liturgy and in these roles. Um, so that's a, another aspect of it is when you get women in the liturgy, uh, it, the, the, the shock factors from experience we've seen seems to disappear and it doesn't become such a strong issue for people because um, it, it just it becomes normalised over time. Yeah. So it's a, it's a sort of a double, it's a, an, an argument that, that could suit two different purposes, basically, or was intended to be. Yeah, I think that normalisation point that keeps coming up throughout the work, that it's just so important to people to start looking at something differently and, and it can just become, you can be brought into it, you can, your position can change, I suppose, relatively, relatively quickly if you just start seeing it and it's accepted and the person sitting next to you who you respect, they respect that and that type of thing, everything can, can actually start to, to, to move on. Well, the, the other aspect of that is... Um which happened that I saw in Perth as well, that um, in some areas, um, I hope this isn't seen to be incredibly sexist, but um, women priests were preferred, for instance, uh, in weddings, for example, and, and, and baptisms. Uh, it seemed to be there was a preference for, for women priests. Um, you know, and, and in pastoral areas, uh, there might be a preference for a woman priest, right? If, if uh, you're a woman talking about a deeply intimate uh, a concern. Um, so it's, it's, it's also not about um, you know, seeing that this person uh, might be as good as somebody else. There's an also an element of um, there's some areas where it might be preferential. Right? Mm. Yeah, well, you have to start talking to Pope Francis. Um, now, we do have to wind up. Time's come to an end, unfortunately. Um, are there any final comments you'd like to make about your about this work and this, this whole project of ecumenism that you haven't said yet? No, look, I, I, 
has been covered. I, I think the, the, the thing I'd like to end on would be, first, thank you for the interview. Um, and also a positive note, uh, you know, much of the discussion about ecumenism is somewhat negative, uh, talking about you know, defects and other in, in certain traditions and uh, unreasonableness on different. But, um, you know, I think the idea of the church coming together is, is actually a very positive and constructive endeavor. And, uh, and I think the capacity of the church to, to work together well in terms of outreach and social justice as a unified entity is, uh, you know, a very compelling motivation to um, continue with these dialogues and this this difficult, you know, endeavour, basically. Mm. And I should say this is being recorded on Easter Saturday, which is almost like the bridging day in Christianity between the death on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday, which I suppose has some parallels to ecumenism as well. Let's hope. Um, and Virginia, what are you working on? Um, what What are you working on now? What areas? Um, well, actually, I've just written a book, which is due to come out shortly, about um, child sex abuse and the Catholic Church. But it's uh, actually looking at the media reporting um, of these inquiries into child sex abuse, and um, and actually how distorted a lot of the, the media reports have been and actually how inaccurate a lot of them have been. And uh, my research suggests, and, and research which is um, based on conditions of inquiry in Australia, Ireland, UK, New Zealand, is that um, the statistics would show that a child sex abuse in the Catholic Church is largely or in large numbers, it's, it's largely historical, which is not to say that it doesn't happen anymore, but, it's, but safeguarding mechanisms were put in place largely in the mid-90s, and in large part they have been effective in dramatically reducing child sex abuse. So right. different subject. <laughs> yeah. That, um, gosh, that would be, in its own way, that would be, I mean, that's just a view to, just, yeah, that's right. It's such a, a common view of the of the crimes of the church is is often reported. That must be a hard um. Yeah, that must be a. It's a very different perspective than what you hear. I'll send you a copy. Yeah, and when's that due out? Oh, this month actually. Oh, really? Excellent. Well, uh, that sounds very interesting. And thank you for a, a very interesting book and for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Virginia.